Welcome back to American Graffiti, one song at a time, where you're never going to believe us, but we break down the movie American Graffiti, one song at a time. I know, crazy, right? I am your host, Tierney Steele, and I am joined by a new guest today. Google keeps trying to tell me that your name is Paul, and I refuse to accept that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, that's that's the, my birth certificate calls me Paul, and uh, but that's that's not who I am. Now, tell, should I tell people who I am, or should we keep it uh, keep it under wraps? You know, we might want to tell them who you are in case they want to check out your other podcasts. Fair that enough. Be kind of confusing. Fair enough. Well, my name is Paul Francis Sullivan, but everyone calls me Sully, and I have been the host of several podcasts, but the one that I'm really putting my back into right now is Locked On MLB, which is a five-day-a-week baseball discussion all year round, which is actually fewer shows than I used to do because of the Sully Baseball Daily podcast, which I did for four years. I didn't miss a day for four years did 365 of a year unless it was a leap year then i did another one but this one is only five days a week but with the season we're recording this just as the season is starting up and i'm a rabid baseball fan grew up a diehard red Sox fan in new england but i'm really more of an all baseball fan now like i just love the game and how it unfolds and I could say stuff like that after watching the Red Sox win four World Series. I could be a little more zen about my love of the game. And uh, I also don't really like what the Boston sports fan has evolved into in my absence. Uh, So I just love the game. I want to see interesting combinations, and I love talking baseball. I also did a movie by Minute called uh, Bull Durham Minute, which featured our dear friend Tierney. Oh, yes. I was on that twice. And uh, I'll let you know that this is coming out towards the end of July. So who knows what our baseball feelings will be then? Nobody (laughs) knows at this point. Nobody knows. So there you go. I let the cat out of the bag that we don't record these just before they're released. It could be anarchy. Well, I have no baseball for you today. I hope that's acceptable. Instead, I have the platters hit the great pretender. Mm -hmm. It's a... A really nice character building through visual scene in this movie. And The Great Pretender was a uh, a big song by The Platters from 1955, uh, written by Buck Ram. It's been uh, covered by a lot of people, including Freddie Mercury. And apparently, uh, Sam and Sam Cooke did a cover of it. And The Great Pretender, that name of that song, inspired the name of the band of one of my favorite bands, The Pretenders. I was so excited when I saw that. Yeah, not as famous a cover, but boy, did it give us a lot. <laughs> yeah, and then, and I like the song The Great Pretender. You know, I like a lot of the songs that are in this film. I'm not a, a giant fan of this era of music. I don't really follow music at all much anyway, but there is... It could be that I just really love this movie, and so these songs remind me of the movie. It's mm. weird how... Uh, I talked to my buddy Richie about this, that there are these pieces of nostalgia for the 50s and early 60s that came out during the 70s. And then there became nostalgia for those pieces of nostalgia. So we became nostalgic for, I felt nostalgic for American Graffiti. Happy Days became 
a piece of nostalgia. Grease became a piece of nostalgia, and then we got nostalgic for the nostalgia. That's what I've got. Someone once asked me what my favorite aesthetic is, and I said it's 50s by way of the 70s. Yeah. It's a totally different color palette than actual 50s stuff. <laughs> and, and it's kind of like it's a representation of the 50s through the lens of we just went through all of this awfulness. And at this point, they were still going through the awfulness. I mean, they Vietnam was still going on. The fall of Saigon hadn't happened yet. Watergate was just bubbling up. And so there was this sort of idolized notion of how things were before, basically before Kennedy was shot. And how much of that is real is, I mean, as someone who, you know, we're living through a terrible time right now, uh, I, I think that there's a lot of revisionist history and looking over a lot of the awfulness that happened in America. You know, that whole concept of, making America great and everything, but for whom? For a few mm-hmm. for a few people it was great. And for a lot of people it was horrible. So there's this sort of prism that we're looking at through we're looking at this through and how much how reliable is this nostalgia? You know, it's it's tying things back to baseball, people always think about the baseball players that they grew up with as old school and playing it the right way. And everyone always thinks about new players can't compare to the old players. It's because of the prism that there is. I, I heard one of the most fascinating pieces of audio I ever heard was an interview with Lou Gehrig after he got his disease and he was and he left the Yankees. And he gave an interview on the condition that they wouldn't ask him questions about his disease. He just wanted to talk about baseball. And so this was 1939. And in the interview, he was saying, you know, people were, the, the interview asked him about players today as opposed to when he was coming up. And he was saying, the players today are pampered. They don't have to work as hard as we do. I mean, when we were coming up, we had to work really hard. And this was, uh, a lot of these kids are handed stuff and, and basically was calling them soft. And who was he calling soft? The era of Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio, mm-hmm. Bob Feller. But it's because you always look at the era you were playing in or the era that's existing now, ah, it's not as good. And I think there was a lot of that, like, oh, so much better and so much simpler before we had to deal with all this stuff. And then there's nostalgia for the nostalgia. But I don't know. I'm, I don't know if I'm making much sense. But, you know, there's American Graffiti really was a pioneer in that 50s nostalgia and 60s nostalgia. And how much of it is true and how much of it is just George Lucas pining for the you know, looking at things through his his fifties colored glasses. I mean, I could look at the <laughs> I could look at the eighties and say, "Oh man, in the eighties, the movies were great, the TV show was great, the music was great," and I'm sure it was awful for so many people. Oh, it was terrible. I I totally ripped it off. I wrote a book. It's set in August two thousand. I was alive in August two thousand. Yeah, I wasn't having that much fun, but by God, I got a young adult novel out of it. Yeah. One crazy night before, and I really debated with doing 1999 because I wanted it to be before the millennium and all that drama, but really, and it's the same thing as Kennedy for Lucas's generation. As long as it was before 9-11, I didn't care. Yeah. That's all that really mattered. That was the changing point. 
Yeah, it really was. I, I don't know how reliable this kind of nostalgia is, but it's fun. Yeah, if, <laughs> if, if you look at it as this is a teenager, this is not an adult, this is an, and in so many ways, this movie is about the final moments of irresponsibility, uh, you know, and before you go off and take the check from the Moose Lodge to go to college, it's always back east. I think the only college mentioned by name was Kurt's creepy teacher went to Middlebury. What an endorsement. <laughs> yeah. And then he comes back to Modesto to uh, hit on high school students. So After one semester. After he one didn't se- even finish at Middlebury. Yeah. Way to go. So, or maybe uh, one year, but I don't know. Either way, he didn't get a diploma from there. No. And I, I only am mixing it up because I have a friend who went to Cabrini for one semester, came home for Christmas break and just never went back. And that would be fine, except that Cabrini's in Philly and it made him a lifelong Flyers fan. And I'm like, you were there three months. Back off my Bruins. Anyway, wrong sport. They're all the wrong sport. So let's really quickly talk about Kurt in the scene. Yeah. Because the lyrics from the song are perfect for him. Even though the song is about missing a woman if you just look at the great pretender aspect of it that's that's kurt (laughs) in this movie well that's the i mean and a larger piece this is one of the things that made the that really blew people's mind away from this film there's a lot of things in this film which are now considered normal but the fact that it was wall-to-wall music and Mm -hmm. that it wasn't at random it wasn't just or you know it was not just okay we'll play this song this song that there's a reason for each song to be playing. You know, why do fools fall in love when, you know, Suzanne Summers is there and Green Onion's playing towards the end. There's there's always a, was it like, If I Can't Have You, is that what was playing when uh, Paula Matt and Mackenzie Phillips have their, their goodbye? And this great pretender, I mean, this is, he he's about to become a pretender along with the pharaohs here. And I think it's wonderful. And it's, it, it's a lot of characterization and storytelling through the music and also through, uh, you know, through sound. I mean, this is another Walter Murch special. And, and one of the great things about when the Zoetrope crowd moved up to San Francisco and started, you know, essentially turned into Francis Coppola and George Lucas churning out films, their use of sound was extraordinary. The use of sound in The Godfather and in The Conversation, obviously, is, is a sound. I mean, it's the sound is kind a character. <laughs> yeah. And the sound in this film, between the music, between the background stuff, gives it a much richer feel than what is physically on the screen. You know, it's, it's beyond just the visual. It's like, how do you put all these different elements? And layering the sound, the silence... The sirens, the the dial, all the stuff folds into each other, and it's really it's remarkable. Was, as he's sitting on, as we later find out, it's uh, Gil Gonzalez's car here, wearing the uh, the shirt which uh, Richard Dreyfuss called the test pattern. You know, he's he's sitting looking at all those TVs in the window, and they're all playing the same show except one. I don't know the show. You probably have it written down there. I couldn't find it. It's driving me insane. The TVs were $169, black and white. Yep. Did you do the math? No, I'm not good at math. I'm not good either, but thanks to the beauty of the internet, I can tell you that as of recording, that $169.50 is worth $1,476.50. 
and 19 cents. And uh, I haven't bought a TV in forever. I, we have one television in the living room and that's it because we're weirdos like that. I had to double check. I was like, that's a lot, right? Yeah. And it is because Best Buy is talking, you know, 400, 500, 600. I'm sure there is a television you can get for, you know, almost 1500 bucks, but it's going to be top of the line, amazing, cutting edge technology, which these are not. These are standard televisions. And this is also when television was still a new intruder in the home. It had really been there only for the last decade. And it was still an extravagance. I mean, remember the great scene in Back to the Future uh, <laughs> where he says, we have two TVs. And the Leah Thompson's mom says, of course, he's joking. Nobody has two TVs. And because, yeah, yeah you don't, it becomes the centerpiece of, of the house at that point. I, you know, I kind of, I remember standing outside of storefronts looking at TV screens. Uh, especially, I remember a lot of times when I would like to, was walking to, when I was living in New York, walking to stand-up comedy shows. And there would be some places that would be selling stuff like Nobody Beats the Wiz or Crazy Eddie's or someplace like that that would have electronics. Of which everything in that store can now be replaced by an iPhone. But but I just I just remember standing outside of one while a Knicks game was going on. There's about three or four people standing out watching the Knicks game on Amsterdam Avenue or wherever the hell it was in the window. And I kind of I like that. There's a sort of communal sense to it. That was actually one of my questions of if you uh, miss watching display televisions. I grew up in the suburbs and did not have the standing on the sidewalk experience of it. But watching the display televisions. Oh, yeah. Because now you walk into a store. There's like two televisions and they're set to some like screensaver thing. Yeah. Or or like a promo for Netflix or Hulu or. Yeah. And it used to be fun because it was actual television or they would gear up a game or uh you know a nature documentary so that it was showing off like oh look at the color blah 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 was it nobody beats the whiz or maybe it was circuit city by that point would have like the big recliners and it's like this is a great way to spend an afternoon when you're too young to do anything else they did do that nobody beats the whiz at least the ones i was at in new york i remember going to the natick mall uh, going to Nate, not to Shoppers World, but there was a mall before you hit Shoppers World. Shoppers World is in Framingham, Mass. And there was a mall before that, which was in Natick, which had a Leechmere. And Leechmere during the 80s was kind of, they had a lot of the electronics there and you can also rent videos there. But when you went to a place like there, you tended to go during the weekend, usually in the afternoon on the weekend. And so they would have about 15, 16 televisions, and they would all be tuned to either the Patriots game or the Celtics game or the Red Sox or the Boston College game. Most of them would be, you know, lined up to the same game in a way that you're like, yeah, you want to buy this. Look at how good the game looks on there. Look mm -hmm. at how great it looks. And I remember just sort of sitting there like sort of like, oh, wow. And they would be all on the same game usually. So you can kind of compare them apples to apples. There is something where we're talking about technology and gadgetry in this shot. This, all these, how many, there's about what, 10, eight or nine TVs in the window in this, from this store. And when Richard Dreyfus, when, you know, Kurt is sitting on Gil Gonzalez's car looking at them, these are the state of the art. These at the at four nineteen was it? When did this take place? Sixty two. For sixty two. Yeah. Where were you in sixty two? For for nineteen sixty two, these are the ones they put in the window. 
these are the SHIT. These are the real thing. And I'm sure if you were a, a tech geek like Lucas was and is, they're like, oh my God, look at how clear the picture is. <laughs> look at the resolution. And now we giggle at it. But it's something that I always thought of, especially because I worked for a tech company for a while. Everyone falls over themselves for the latest piece of technology. And I always think to myself, you realize that in a couple of years, you will look at that like it's used toilet paper. Like, look at how awful this is. This is gross. This is disgusting. Compare it to this. Yeah, but you sat outside for hours to buy that. To buy something, it will be on the front of the line for five minutes before another product comes and you will immediately want to throw that away. It's one of the reasons why I can never be one of these people who get obsessed over having the state of the art stuff because it's like it's it's you know it's only going to be state of the art for a minute. If you looked at the TV that we had in our living room in 19, that I first watched American Graffiti on in 1980, I'm going to say 83 or 84, it was a tremendous television. It had a wireless remote control. It was cable. Mm-hmm. You you can hook it right up to the VCR. You can record one thing and watch another. It was high tech. And they even had a button to you exactly to the last channel you were on. So if you're watching mm-hmm. channel 38, but you wonder what was on 56, you flip to 56, flip back to 38. You don't have to type 38. Just hit last channel. In 83 or 84, that was like seeing the monolith in 2001 A Space Odyssey. I, we were like we were like the monkeys jumping up and down, touching it and throwing a bone in the air. And if I show that to you now, you're like, what is this? Just, just put it on the street and put a post-it note that says free on it. What was the circumstance for you seeing this movie the first time? Family movie night? No, no. I'll tell you what it was. And it's it's all linked to Star Wars. You know, my brother and I... Perfect. I grew up in New England, as everyone does. And <laughs> Star Wars came out when I was five. Empire came out when I was eight. And Return of the Jedi came out when I was uh, 11. Perfect ages to be for that. Just the the summers between Empire and Jedi were just obsessive over the build-up for Return of the Jedi, which that build-up included E.T., Wrath of Khan, Tron, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Superman 2, all this great stuff to watch, but it was still, it was all prologue <laughs> for Return of the Jedi. Along the way, we wound up reading a book called Skywalking, which is a an early biography of George Lucas, which had a big, long section about the early drafts of Star Wars and the evolving of the script, which is we wore down those pages till they were they were wrinkled up. But there was all this talk about the success of this movie called American Graffiti led to him having the clout to make Star Wars. So obviously, I wanted to see this film. I knew it had nothing to do with space. I knew it was it had to do with cars, and I also knew that it was kind of like Happy Days. You had to find movies then, and I don't know if that's better or worse, but it sure made the feeling of, oh my God, I get to watch it now. When you see these stills of it, you hear about it, you read about it. Instead of it automatically being on your phone, you lift your thumb up, you lift your front thumb down and suddenly you're watching it and and that's wonderful too i'm not saying i'm not being lou gehrig saying these kids today they have you know they have it soft i'm saying that the build up and anticipation of i finally get to watch that after looking at stills from them reading about it led me to taping it it was either on channel 56 or channel 25 in boston and it was on at like one o'clock in the morning yes 
And so we threw in a tape, put it on super long play where you can put eight hours of material and it looks like crap. Mm-hmm. And we wa- we taped it with commercials, obviously. The first seven or 8,000 times I saw the movie, it was this horrible recording where it was, I would say it was pan and scan, except they forgot to pan. So <laughs> it was basically just always smack dab in the middle of the shot of the frame so i like there's what there's there's two scenes specifically one is when harrison ford and cindy williams are in the car not the some enchanted evening scene but when they were like uh he was asking about paradise road oh yeah yeah where you just see the rear view mirror and the street behind (laughs) because they're framed on either end of the shot and smack dab in the middle is the rearview mirror and the street. And the other scene that I distinctly remember was when Kurt finally visits Wolfman Jack in the radio station way, way out nowhere. He's talking to him. At one point, he's sitting back and Wolfman Jack, I, I don't get back to, I know that's not my scene, but there's something specific I want to bring up about that scene. And, you know, Kurt's talking about you know, is listening to Wolfman Jack having his wonderful scene where he says, you know, there's a great, big, beautiful world out there. Now, Wolfman Jack, thank God, was in the center of the shot. (laughs) But Kurt is kind of sitting back, sort of listening to it all, not sure what to make of it. And the shot is just his hand, his Mm. hand resting on his knee. That was the shot. This is how I watched it the first seven, eight, nine hundred times that I saw it. And You know, American Graffiti is not a cinematographer's special. In fact, Coppola was a little bit aghast when he watched how quickly Lucas would set up a shot and frame it after, you know, Coppola had done, you know, The Godfather where each shot was this painstakingly created piece of light and choreography. And Lucas was like, you guys stand over there. Uh, (laughs) But the composition within the frame, when when I finally saw it widescreen, was maybe it's because I had just seen it with blinders on, but finally seeing the whole thing and seeing what's how you know how people are walking in and out of the frame, mm. I was like, oh wow, this is quite a visual film. But yeah, that that was the first I I jumped out of my sky. I didn't know Harrison Ford was in it when I saw it. When I saw his name nice. in the opening credits, I was thrilled when I saw him with the big you know cowboy hat and you know. <laughs> but I lo- I mean I loved it. I saw it because I saw it out of respect for Star Wars. I did the same thing for THX 1138, which I saw, which was better. The pan and scan, and that was at least they panned and scanned it. That was on <laughs> chan- that was the 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 eight o'clock movie on Channel 56. But the the overnight film was clearly just pop this thing in and put it in the middle. THX was kind of like okay, that happened. I I admire that they did something weird, but. I probably would never have watched American Graffiti if I wasn't just a Star Wars fan, but I saw it when I was 11 or 12 years old. And mind you, this was when I was like seven, eight, nine years old. Everybody watched Happy Days. Everybody watched okay. Happy Days. Happy Days was, it's difficult to understand how huge that show was, how ubiquitous that show was. It You didn't ask did you watch Happy Days last night? That's like saying, did you breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide? Now, Happy Days happened to have aged like milk. However, there were the archetypes in that, the Fonzie archetype, the Richie archetype, the Ralph Mouth. And I recognize, obviously, Ron Howard is in both. There's a lot of Fonz in 
John Milner. There's a lot of Ralph Mouth in Terry the Toad. Uh, obviously, Cindy Williams has the Laverne and Shirley connection. So I had been, um, I had not seen Greece yet at that point. I was, I was too young to have seen Greece. Although a lot of kids my age saw it, I didn't care. But I was prepared to see a piece of nostalgia from that era. That didn't seem strange. But I could tell that this was, there was more to this than just. This was more intelligent than Happy Days, and I could tell at age eleven or twelve how it was when I saw it. I, I like, okay, this is uh, this is interesting. Uh, by the way, around that same time, I taped another film. This was off the movie loft, which was the ooh, that was the that was where they they left in the swear words, and they knew where to pan and scan. Another movie that I watched because I loved the movie that the the TV show that it yielded. That's around the time I got to be obsessed with the movie Mash. So around the time I was watching Robert Altman's Mash, I was uh, watching American Graffiti. Now, have, have you seen Robert Altman's Mash? Oh, I might know a little something about it, having done a Movies by Minutes podcast Oh, on that's it. right. I forgot that you did that one. Yeah. And someone else did a Movies by Minutes podcast on That Thing You Do, which I definitely thought of watching this scene. I Something about, because that one, it starts, he works in the little department store or appliance store or whatever <laughs> they were called then. Yeah. So the, the rock and roll aspect, the TVs in the window, re, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to that one. It aged a lot better than Happy Days. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this is, uh, it's so funny because this is a movie that was basically made on a dare. So the fact that it worked just blows my mind, if you think about it. Yeah, there's, I'll tell you, two films came out in 73 and 74 that made me lament what could have been with San Francisco-based filmmaking. And this is one, and The Conversation, which features several actors that crossed over, including Cindy Williams and Harrison Ford, and also the dude, I can't remember his name, but he was the, the guy from the Moose Lodge, who says, someday he'll make a fine moose. And oh, yeah. He, he, he's a local actor from San Francisco who appears in so many of Coppola's films. But those were low-key, very personal films that I think shows what Francis Coppola could have been if he hadn't lost his damn mind in the Philippines. And this film shows what George Lucas could have been if he didn't become obsessed with making toys. And again, I, I mean, I love Star Wars Empire and Jedi and, and Raiders, obviously, but there's an intelligence to the filmmaking here and even just the visual, how this is framed, that he's sitting watching it and the way the pharaohs kind of come into the frame, like are they passing surround by him. and surround him and then they do the wide shot and they're all looking at the TV too, but suddenly Kurt is in trouble. Mm-hmm. I look at this shot and I think the same director who wrote this scene, or at least co-wrote this scene, and directed and choreographed this action, later did Jar Jar Binks. Like, I mean, what the hell? Like, there's so much subtlety, there's so much characterization by music and posture. There's so much that's being shown and not told here. You're like, God, I wish I, you know, again, I wouldn't, Star Wars changed so many of our lives and I love it and I, and, and it's fabulous. I wish he made more films like this. I wish we saw more of this George Lucas. Yeah. We could have both. <laughs> yeah, you could absolutely have both. Money's great. I'm not 
begrudging him the money. Hey, so <laughs> Spiel- Spielberg made a lot of gigantic blockbuster films, and he's also made some other. I don't want to say low key films. I don't think Spielberg's ever made a low key film, but he <laughs> like he could. He's also capable. His idea of low key is not our idea of low key. But he's capable but... of a Catch Me If You Can. You know, he's capable of a Lincoln. For him. They're chill. <laughs> and for him, they're chill, but they're also, they show another side to him other than just the spectacle. And these are two very creative films, conversation in this one, how they use sound, how they use framing to develop character. And it's really, uh, I kind of, I, you know, I wish we could have seen more out of this, out of this version of George Lucas. You know, he gets a lot of crap for being a bad director of actors. The directing of the actors in this film is tremendous. Yeah, you know, there are no wasted characters in this film. There's so many people who I can just mention, like, as I said, the guy from the Moose Lodge or or the creepy teacher. We're in, like, what, one scene? That, you know, a great film are the films where there are no wasted characters. I could talk about Joe the Pharaoh or, was it Ants? Is that the name of the other? Uh, there, yeah. There's, yeah. there's uh, Carlos and Ants are the other two pharaohs. Yeah. Carlos is the shorter one with the uh, other cigarette, and Ants is the taller one. Yeah. who uh, has suggestions for what they should do to Kurt. Right. This was filmed very documentary style, and that really suited Lucas's filmmaking style. And he's filming, yeah, they're not all teenagers, but they're close enough where if you give them a character and a few lines, they can extrapolate from there. <laughs> they're not like, it's not some completely foreign concept to them. So I think he does do a good job pulling it all together and also letting things happen, I guess is the way I wanted to phrase it, of like Charles Martin Smith was saying he thought Lucas was out to get him, like just letting it roll until he messed up, basically. The way Kurt gets off the car, the line when he starts to walk away, they say, where are you going? Uh, nowhere. Well, that's some character development right there. And then the way Dreyfus walks back to them, just emanating uncomfortableness. Yeah. That's not something Lucas told him to do. Lucas didn't direct that that scene out of him, but he saw a good thing <laughs> and he got it. Yeah. And, and that he, uh, you know, and he walks away and then they have him come back and they kind of surround him again. And he kind of has that little, you know, he's trying to be on the defensive and Joe the Pharaoh shows the uh, the scratch on Gil Gonzalez's car. There's just a lot of he's in danger without someone pulling a switchblade. He's in danger without saying we're going to kick your ass although they, they, they later talk about tied him to the, the <laughs> yeah. bumper and dragged him. Um, but it escalates there. I will say Kurt is doing something that every single woman listening to this and probably a fair amount of the men to have done which is the, like I'm going to smile and nod and get out of this situation because, oh, my God, <laughs> just going to just going to let. La- oh, darn. I'm so sorry about yeah, that. Well, yeah. got to go. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out. I, Bo Hopkins is great in this scene. And, mm-hmm. you know, Bo Hopkins is kind of a, a that guy. He, he never had his. He never had that gigantic breakout role for him. He's been, he still is working. He was in Hillbilly Elegy, which is directed by his American Graffiti co-star, Ron Howard. But, you know, he pops up all throughout, constantly in some big films, some terrible films. But, you know, he, he's a, an established actor. By the way, he later also appeared in Radioland Murders, another Lucasfilm production. Yeah, and he has a he has a memorable small role in the Sam Peckinpah film, The Wild Bunch. 
But you, you look at there are three actors in this film who very well could have been. They come across, three actors who are great in this film who really could have been big time leading men in Hollywood, and only one of them really fulfilled that. Harrison Ford obviously did. But you look at Paul Lamatt, you look at Bo Hopkins, and they both they both look great, and they both have a certain swagger on screen for their roles here. And Bo Hopkins has a lot, very lot of subtle humor in this. You know, like, no, I'm talking to the other 50 creeps here, you know, or like, you know, or yeah. uh, the way he acts, you know, nice to meet you in the, in the Moose Lodge, you know, all these things that, you know, that he does. He comes across really great. And by the way, I'm going to give a quick shout out to the actor Manuel Padilla Jr., who's listed in the opening credits, who played Carlos in this. And he reprises the role in uh, More American Graffiti as both Bo Hopkins and and as both Joe and Carlos appear in More American Graffiti as well, but there, yeah, there's a there's a lot of you know subtle humor from him that I think uh, I don't know just it it adds to the the texture of this film. I mean, it's obviously a comedy, but it's not loaded with jokes. It's mainly loaded with humorous moments and you know a, 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 and and an atmosphere which I think 1973 was kind of startling. Oh, I'm not going to find it. Sorry. I was trying to look up someone who is from West Virginia. Uh, posted some great recommendations for things other than hillbilly elegy to check out. But yeah, yeah. that's, uh, oh, you know what? People got to work. Not busting the actors of Ron Howard. Hey, if, if your agent calls up and says Ron Howard's making a film and Glenn Close is in it, you know, you, yeah. say, you say yes. Of course. Absolutely. So, you know, you didn't know it was going to be that. So before we wrap up, I can't believe I'm saying that because I feel like we could talk about Richard Dreyfus in this film forever. Oh boy, and, and how fast did he age? I mean, like, you're also doing Close Encounters Minute at this point. He looks like he's in his mid-30s and haggard, and here he looks like a teenager. There are some from the reshoots where he is graying in his hair. Yeah. He is a teenager here. I love him singing along. That oh, oh. is what really makes it for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, he's he's so amazing in this film. He is absolutely incredible in this film, and there's there's so much humor in him, but there's not a single false note. I mean, he's probably the fun. He and Terry are probably Terry the Toad and Kurt are probably the two funniest characters in the film. Um, and Candy Clark, Candy Clark's pretty funny as well in this, but like I think has the most funny lines are the Toad and Kurt is what I'm saying. Candy Clark's entire performance as Debbie is just hilarious attitude. They're like she'll just say funny things. But if there are any one-liners in the film, it's a uh, Kurt and Toad. He really could have had a career, kind of like a Jack Lemon type of career, playing comedic roles and everything like that. And it's and he wound up, he wound up winning an Oscar playing a, a comedic a comedy part. But it's amazing that his two biggest roles, in some ways, were Spielberg. Sci-fi, you know, special effects epics. <laughs> but what he brought to those films is that there's not a false note in him, and I think that that, at least at this point in his career, you get the fact that he is struggling with what to do. And in so many ways, this film is kind of like his odyssey, and he bumps in, he sees versions of what he could become, including being John Milner, being. 17 forever he could be a pharaoh uh wander around them <laughs> he could become the creepy teacher who comes back and ultimately he could become the wolfman and all the while he's chasing this sort of idolized 
Siren, which is the Suzanne Summers and the T-Bird. But this is, I think it's interesting when you see this as we're seeing the potential realities for Kurt unfold. And this is one of them, you know. And Lucas apparently in real life belonged to a, a gang called the Pharaohs, who are like a race car group. Yeah, Lucas using the word gang doesn't have the same connotations because he was so immersed in that car world where it's like, yeah, the car, the the car guys, the gang. And I'm like, mm, a little bit different. <laughs> I think it was more, yeah, I think it was more of like they were the... He just like matching jackets. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I want to just say just a couple of uh, quick things here. First of all, just very quickly about More American Graffiti, which I also taped because... Lucas had something to do with it. It was panned and has a terrible reputation, more American graffiti. And parts of it are truly terrible. There are parts of it that just do not work. And it doesn't quite work as a movie. The editing of it is, it's a very strange structure because there's four stories going on like this, except they take place during four different years. One is 64, one is 65, one is 66, one is 67. And they intercut the stories there. And parts of it just really don't work. But I will say, Terry the Toad in Vietnam is, there are some nice scenes in that. And John Milner being kind of a drag racer, you know, going on, abandoning the the yellow car and just sort of become a real sort of drag racer and trying to make his living doing that, has some nice, there's some nice moments to it. And it gives Paul LeMatte a chance to shine like he has mm. a much bigger substantial he, he's able to do more things than he does in this film and i think he's remarkable in this film it's meteor yeah and and again you can't watch it from beginning to end and say wow what a wonderful movie experience i just had <laughs> but for such a universally panned movie they says i do what every once in a while i landed on something nice i don't know how much of it is i like these characters so much it's nice to see them again I will say, uh, I'll, I'll, I want to just bring this one thing up that I did. I made a independent feature that nobody saw, that saw the inside of some movie theaters, and we got a couple of nice reviews and a couple of really bad reviews. And But hey, at least we made a movie, and it, it's real, it exists, it's called I'll Believe You. I'll go on the record, I've always hated that title. The title on the screenplay and all through shooting was called First Time Caller, which I liked that title so much better, but... First time caller never got a distribution deal. I'll believe you did. So therefore, <laughs> I, therefore, I like I'll believe you. There you go. And it's about a late night talk show host who's like who, a, a call-in host on a ra- in a little radio station in the you know, on the outskirts of nowhere in Florida, and he starts getting phone calls that might be from an extraterrestrial or it might be from a lunatic and because he is who the guy is who he is he wants to believe that it's a signal from uh, an alien because a ufo was found someone saw a ufo crash the night before so he put two and two together that they must be connected we kind of modeled the radio station out in the middle of nowhere as an homage to wolfman jack in american graffiti but more specifically the radio engineer, the guy who's you know who's behind the booth, who's played by my dear friend Richie Duncan, who the main character is loosely based on, and throughout the entire movie, every time you see him, he's eating an ice cream sandwich, and that's a little homage to Wolfman Jack having the popsicles. We gave him an ice cream sandwich, and my pal Richie who, wonderful comedian, co-writer of the book, The Werewolf's Guide to Life, which is a way to live if you happen to be a lycanthrope. He's told me, we shot that in 2000 and 
free, I guess, and the film came out in 2007, which gives you an idea of how long we were banging the drum for it. He said, to this day, he says, I can't eat an ice cream sandwich because take after take, we have him chomping it down. And we had a, a cooler, we had a cooler of them. And there's a couple of takes we see when when you hear me yell cut and he pulls out a, uh, a wastebasket and spits out the ice cream sandwich because he just can't shove another one into his body. And by the way, one of the characters in that film, who is a skeptical uh, high school science teacher who is the best friend of the radio host, who really does not think it's an alien, is played by the wonderful writer and comedian C.C. Pleasance, who has been a guest on Close Encounters. And I think League of Their Own, I think think C.C. did that. And she's now a writer for James Corden and is one of the funniest people in the world. At the time, she was my dear friend C.C. and a comedian. And so she plays the part of the skeptical high school science teacher. But that was our American Graffiti references. Richie Duncan chomping down on ice cream sandwiches while everyone's talking about flying saucers. Well, I have no idea how to transition this There's to no. talking about the platters, but I might actually just lift this whole part and put it at the beginning where we we're talking about the song because uh, people watching along this movie with this podcast will have already heard about the platters. They had a song at the dance, at the hop, but that was a cover. This is our first original platter song, and I really quickly wanted to talk a little bit about it, especially since, like American Graffiti, it was basically made on a dare. Really? Because the Platters had been a band for a while, and they were doing fine. They were doing fine. They were booking gigs. They were releasing songs. This fine. They moved to Mercury and hit it big with Only You, which, stay tuned, listeners, is coming up. Their manager, Buck Ram, might sound kind of familiar if you're into music, Mm -hmm. was hanging out with a friend at the Flamingo Hotel on the Strip, and he boasted he had a song even better than Only You. It was going to blow Only You out of the water. It's going to be the biggest song in the the scene. And they said, what's it called? And he came up with the title, The Great Pretender on the Spot. And then he went to the washroom and wrote the song in 20 minutes, is what... (laughs) He has always told people. Wow. So yeah, this came out November 1955. It hit number one on Billboard's Top 100 in February 1956. And so like we've talked a couple times like, oh, it's 50s music, but this is 62. But that was enough of a hit that it's like, yeah, I would still play on the radio. Like that would just be, you know, it's not the hot song of the summer, but the the DJ's still going to play it plenty. It was a huge hit. Um, Also, the Platters were in the 1956 film Rock Around the Clock, which has come up on this podcast before, and they performed both the big hits, Only You and The Great Pretender. So things are going great. They're hitting it big. Uh, Got a little bit of drama going, uh, as most of the groups we talk about on the show did, of in 1959, all four of the male members... So there are five members, four boys and a girl. All four of the male members were arrested for dr- on drug and prostitution charges. Like you do. No convictions, but it really hurt their reputation. A lot of radio stations pulled them at that point. And this was 59. So I like that Wolfman Jack is like, F that, who cares? This is a great song. I'm playing it. <laughs> well, it's the Wolfman. You know, no one's going to catch the Wolfman. Yeah. He understands. The other thing that makes this group a little bit hard to follow is that various members swapped in and out at all sorts of times. Now, the nice thing is the big hits all happen with Mercury in the same lineup. Yeah. 
But as the members were swapping in and out, a bunch of them started side projects. And also, Buck Ram had some scheme going to buy the name as, like, as members left, he'd buy their portion of rights to the name. And every judge who ever saw this was like, you, that's not how it works, buddy. But things got really muddy legally for the platters as time went on. And, uh, but did go on. I mean, this is not as horrible a story as, um... Why am I now blanking on um, Frankie L- Frankie Lyman? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I knew if I rubbed my temples hard enough, it would come to me. So, yeah, it's it's not a tragedy, but it, it was very legally messy. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, they, yeah, they tend to get legally messy when you get involved with, with drugs and and prostitution, you know. I did I did not see like a full description, but I was like, that's pretty bad, especially when the entire band... <laughs> Not the entire band, but almost. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, not a good look for that manager. Yeah, that morning must have been a rough one for everyone involved. Yeah, we need to call our, our manager. Yeah, drugs and prostitution. Yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> and then especially the fact that so many radio stations were just like, yoink, not dealing with that. Even though, like I said, nothing technically came of that. But uh, yeah, it was a whole drama. And then 1959 was also the year that lead singer left and did his own thing. So yeah, it just got, it got messy. Just like it's getting messy for Kurt. Yeah. He's getting mixed up with a rough crowd. (laughs) Well, yeah, this is the next part of his tour of what could have been. Of course, he ends when they talked about they dragged him from the truck. And, of course, he realizes he's in trouble and he has the great defense mechanism of laughing. And with that laugh, he gives us our first sample of the Matt Hooper laughing during the show me the way to go home scene from Jaws. So that was uh, he's very, very Matt Hooper at the end of this scene. Which I'm fine with. I'm down to clown. So I will be back tomorrow to talk more about the Pharaohs and what's going to happen with Kurt. Uh, Listeners watching this movie for the first time alongside Pox, please don't worry about Kurt. We've already established he lives to the end of the movie. It's fine. (laughs) Although he's not in more American Graffiti. Just so you know. Trying to think how badly I want to spoil the end of this movie. But I'll I'll save it. I'll read it in. Don't. Don't. God. Tierney, save yourself, please. Well, I obviously cannot save myself because this is one of many podcasts I do. Thank you so much for shouting out Close Encounters, which was called This Means Something, and also Mash Minute. Mm-hmm. And League very of the- exciting. And League of Their Own. Yep, League of Their Own, one inning at a time. That was the first in the summer series that we're doing, so. And I shout out to my own, which would be Bull Durham Minute and Locked On MLB. And the old one, which I don't do anymore because it morphed into a Locked On MLB, which is Sully Baseball daily so look at all the podcasts look at all the ways you can follow podcasts and keep us in your ear isn't it exciting folks uh yes if you're not sick of hearing us those are the places to check out and um i am one steel sister on twitter and instagram o-n-e-s-t-e-e-l-e-s-i-s-t-e-r and would you like to give them your twitter handle because honestly like that has morphed in my brain into being your name (laughs) Uh, yeah, and, and, and also apparently morphed into the brains of the, the fellows at uh, Indiana Jonesman who refer to me as Sully Baseball, which is my Twitter yeah. handle. My Instagram handle is Sully Baseball Podcast because someone already took Sully Baseball on Instagram. So it's Sully Baseball Podcast on The Instagram. avatar is the same, so yeah. my brain just goes with it. <laughs> Amen. Well, thanks for having me on, talking about a film which I watched 
right down the middle. <laughs> He's really fast, isn't he?